This is The Deadly Physios, an Australian Physiotherapy Association production. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are warned that the following episode may contain the names and voices of people who are deceased. We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the many lands across Australia and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. We recognise their enduring connection to the lands and waterways of this country and thank them for protecting and maintaining this country for us and future generations. In this series, our host Cameron Edwards interviews deadly physios from around Australia. And by deadly, we mean something that is awesome or fantastic. So join us as we have a yarn and enjoy some deadly stories. Yama, or hello in Gamilaroi. And welcome back to The Deadly Physios. We've got a really exciting podcast planned for you today because we have Michael Reynolds on the line. Michael, how are you going today? Good, thanks, Cam. Great to be on. I am so excited to interview you. You have been such an advocate for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health. You have been an inspiration to me and a mentor of sorts as well. And so I'm excited to hear more of your story today and to share that with the wider audience. To start with, I wanted to do a bit of an acknowledgement of country and acknowledge the country that I'm on, Darug land, and to pay my respects to their elders past and present. And I was wondering if you could do the same and tell us a little bit about the land that you're on. Yeah. Hi, Warami, which is um, hello in Darug, and also what the Tatamadagul people would have spoken of the Garingai nations here in the northern part of Sydney. I acknowledge them. I acknowledge uh, my mob, Rajri mob, and uh, my elders past, present. And I'm so thankful that there's so many other young physios like yourself really taking the message of Aboriginal issues to the nation and and to the wider physio audience. Well, I think it was Einstein who said that any success of his was because of the giant's shoulders that he stood on. And I certainly feel like today we're interviewing one of those giants. To start with, I want to ask, what makes you a deadly physio? A deadly physio. I'd never really call myself a deadly physio. I'm not really talking myself up too much. The question would be more like what makes any of us deadly as First Nations physios. And you sort of touched on it before that we're only as strong as the people around us, our family, our friends, the people that have come before us, our elders. And I think we've got something pretty special as Aboriginal physios because we can draw on that sort of 65,000 year history of being on our lands. And for me, That provides a lot of strength for me in whatever I do, and it keeps me humble. And if that makes me deadly, well, yeah, so be it. Sorry to put that one on you, but it's the name of our podcast, and that's why you were invited on, because you definitely have a lot to add to the profession and also, like I said, are a role model. To begin with, I would like to talk about your story. I want to know, how did you end up working as a physio and why physio? And a little bit of your growing up story as well. Talk to us about that. Well, in terms of physio, I was always good at science at school. I remember being a kid and then hearing about people working out knots in muscles and thought, how do muscles get into knots? I didn't really understand anything, but I thought it was pretty amazing that you could do something to fix it. And as I learned more about science and then I generally got on well with people, I thought physio was probably a good avenue to go down. Now, I know that physio has gone beyond just, you know, (laughs) it's not just removing knots out of people's muscles. And I know it encompasses so much more than that. But that was probably what got me into it in the first place. I didn't really have a lot of interaction with physios. I think a lot of people get into physio because they've had a really positive interaction as they've been growing up. 
And so they say, oh, that's something I really want to do. But for me, and I think for a lot of other Aboriginal people that I've spoken to anyway, that hasn't been the case. It's been something else that brought them into it. For me, it was that love of science and people and some great support through Yurangarang at the Sydney University, a wonderful program there supporting young Indigenous high school students transitioning into the health sciences. They do a wonderful job there. I grew up in uh, Eastwood in New South Wales, just in the suburbs of Sydney. My mum's stolen generations. She's originally from around Wellington, sort of Dubbo way, so sort of a northern Wiradjuri for people that know. Wiradjuri is quite a large group and they are across the mountains and she was taken from her family when she was quite young and bounced around different foster homes and then she ended up in one foster home in Reesby and she was backdoor neighbours with my father. She was there from when she was about seven or eight, I think, in that family or in that home. And she lived there, you know, not around culture or without her identity with her. No real communication with other family members at that stage, which was the way it was. And then her and her brothers and sisters slowly reconnected over the years as they were able to. From there, they moved very briefly to Homebush and then out to Eastwood, where I grew up. Not a very big Aboriginal population there. So I sort of felt, in terms of that part of my identity, I felt quite isolated. So I suppose part of my journey, particularly over the last 10 years or so, has been sort of reconnecting a little bit more with my culture and seeing how I can give back. But in giving back, I'm giving a lot to myself as well at the same time. So I've really enjoyed my journey with my work through the APA and universities and other organisations to help with the whole reconciliation, closing the gap cause. We really are in a position to give back. And I love that you've just mentioned that powerful theme that as we give back, we also build ourselves up as well. You mentioned the stolen generations, and you know what? I wasn't even thinking about going down that route for this episode, but I would like our listeners just to be aware. You can't see Michael at the moment, and Michael, I don't want to put you on the spot, but can you give us an age bracket that you are in between, and then also your mum's age bracket, just in a decade? You don't have to say the actual ages, but people think that it's a long time ago. That's right. So I'm in my 40s, and my mum's in the late 60s. And she was born, as many people are born, in a time when Aboriginal people weren't counted in this country as citizens. There was 1967 referendum, which passed with about 90.67% that Aboriginal people should be counted in the census for the first time. So she was born at a time when we weren't seen as important enough to be counted. It was coming out of an era of really hurtful policy for so many First Nations people. Whatever was left of our beautiful culture, it just got I don't know, for me anyway, being through that stolen generations was really just ripped from our family. And I know that a lot of families, you know, remember there's 250 different language groups, about 600 different dialects all the way across the nation. So listeners need to recognize that my story isn't necessarily the story of everyone. Everyone has different links with culture and different links with family. And the whole effects of colonization has affected individuals and families in lots of different ways. But certainly for me, the stolen generations is incredibly important to me because for me personally, that's that gap in identity that I have. It's the gap that my mother has and my uncles and my cousins and their kids still have with their culture. Yes, there's a gap to sort of make our kids' lives better than it was for us and for our parents, I suppose, and to remember that. But it's also to, in making it better, is also to help that reconnection with your own identity and culture. And I think people feel that tug in lots of different ways. People go on Ancestry.com, you know, people might look at a particular Italian heritage or a Greek heritage and things like that. But for the stolen generations, it really happened in a very, I don't know, it was widespread, wasn't it, Cam? Like it was right throughout the country. We have this very common theme with the stolen generations. It was government policy to take kids away from their families, which 
just caused a huge amount of hurt. And that's only happened over a very short period of time. We've survived, but there's still a lot of hurt out there and there's still a lot of healing that needs to be done, both between non-Indigenous and Indigenous people, but just for Indigenous people themselves to reconnect with country, reconnect with family, reconnect with their stories. I think that really is the theme of these podcasts, to just connect policy and history and things that people may have heard over their lifespan, whether or not that's through education at school or through personal journeys and research. But then to, I know they can't see your face, but put a name to this and to kind of put context to it. And I think that's what you've just done. You've explained that we're not all homogenous. Not all Aboriginals share the same history or the same understanding of identity due to these policies, due to this trauma. And that leads me to a question about trust. I've asked about these trust issues within Aboriginal mobs towards potentially government, potentially authorities, potentially health professionals. And I know that some of our audience may have tried to begin mending the gap, which we can talk about what that gap is a little bit later. But what I wanted to zoom in on right now is about trust. Why is that so important and why has that been fractured? Can you talk a little bit more about how we can rebuild that in our practices? There's a lot to unpack there, Cam. (laughs) But um, trust is a really important issue. And I suppose in the first instance, with anyone, trust needs to be earned. Particularly, I think, between or between anyone really, trust needs to be earned. It shouldn't just be expected. Just because you're a physio and you're giving a service, it doesn't mean that someone should necessarily just trust that what you say is going to be good. You have to make sure that you have gone to some effort to understand the person in front of you, understand what their goals are, understand what their background is, and work with them to achieve a common goal. Part of that requires a bit of a check of yourself Because if we don't know what we don't know, then we end up making fools of ourselves. It's an extremely complex question. I think that lack of trust is going to be different in different situations. It's certainly a product of history. So historically, how Aboriginal people have been treated. With some people, certainly, let's say with my mum being taken away from her family, well, do you think she's going to be overly, well, not overly protected? Do you think she's going to be extra protective with her children? And she's going to be a little bit more distrustful of authority? She's not going to just have a rapport with anyone. She needs to know that the person they're dealing with is going to be working with her. Aboriginal people for now and for 200 plus years have had people tell them what to do, whether it's through government policy or whether it's just through, look, we know what's best for you or do this or why can't you just help yourself? I've told you what to do, just go do it. Never before really in Australia's history have Aboriginal people had a good voice in terms of determining how they can... I suppose, help themselves or achieve whatever they want to achieve. That hasn't happened. And so when we're not part of that decision-making process, we don't trust the decision that's being produced. So we look at all this close the gap stuff that's been going on from government. And we look at even from a government level, look at the ministers for Indigenous Affairs. It's only with the last government that we've actually had an Indigenous or an Aboriginal person as a minister for Aboriginal Affairs, which is quite scary when you think about, we talk about Australia being this amazing, democratic, progressive country, except we can't even look after our first peoples properly. We can't even have a proper voice for our first peoples. We don't have a treaty with our first peoples. Every other country has. Why can't we have it? Why can't we have it? And if we don't have a treaty, well, why can't we have some agreement with our first peoples collectively about how we need to move forwards? 
That's what the Uluru Statement was. That's what you know, Makarata was about and is about. That's how all these, and it's not just Uluru, it's been all these other statements and representations to governments at a state level and a federal level that's existed since day dot of colonization. And it still hasn't happened. So if people, if they're not being listened to at that level, at a governmental level, or they're not listened to at an industry level, then Aboriginal people feel as though they're not being listened to. So they're not going to trust those organisations or those people or governments that tell them what to do, because it needs to be a collaborative effort. We know as physios, we get the best out of people when we have good patient-centred goals. So why can't we have good Australian-centred goals with our first peoples? I don't understand why that's the case. And I know that they're working towards that, but it just needs to be better. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And I know that is a really tough question. And in fact, you've covered a a couple of topics that we're going to go in and out of and explore a little bit more. With that question about trust, there's another word that has been popping up in recent debates or recent protests or even within the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander space. And that is the idea of truth-telling. And I'm wondering, what does that mean to you? Truth-telling means that as a 10-year-old kid, as I was growing up, I'm not told that Australia was discovered in 1788 or 1770 or whatever it was. I'm told not just about Captain Cook and Governor Macquarie and Governor Philip, John Batman, if you're from Melbourne, whatever. I'm not just told about those people. I'm told about the amazing Aboriginal leaders that have come through and made that element of the country great. Aboriginal culture has survived in the last 200 years. It hasn't been annihilated. We've gone from 100% of these lands populations to around 3%, except there's some very important people all the way around the country that have continued to light the flame of Indigenous culture and do their best to make sure that this is part of the Australian narrative. Charles Perkins and sporting greats and things as well who've contributed to the national debate. Adam Goods, Australian of the Year. There's a whole bunch of truths they've been telling the country for years. Australia is a country for years, but people don't listen. There's a lot of truth telling. I'd probably rephrase that and say, what does truth listening mean? There's people that have been telling a lot of truths, but no one seems to listen to them. And I I don't know. I don't understand why people don't want to listen. I do a little bit because we're taught about, I remember being told about Dreamtime stories. I remember talking about boomerangs and didges and you'd hear about how good all these Aboriginal athletes are, you look at Kathy Freeman win the 400 metres, you look at all these things and we try to celebrate our great Australians and it's even greater if they're of our First Nations people. But that's only part of the truth. I think we need to be listening to hard truths that have happened in this country. We need to understand the struggles and successes of Australia. We need to be really open about it. We need to be looking at what happened on missions. We need to be having a look at what happened in different parts of the stolen generations. I think if you walk down the street and you ask your average Australian, whatever that's supposed to be, the average Australian about what the stolen generations are, I think you'd struggle to get more than about a paragraph out. This is a really important part of Australian history and it's shaped a really important part of who we are, like it or not. And we need to understand those truths, those hard truths, before we can start to move forward. You can't pretend it didn't happen. You can't sweep that from history. We need to have a really open, transparent look and understand what those stories are. And those stories need to be told by First Nations people because we need to understand that perspective so we can understand who we are as a nation. It's not necessarily us, but what made us as a nation. Only then can we start to tell truths and listen to truths and learn from those truths. Well, I think, Michael, you've just started a new movement, the truth listening. There it is. I'll back you on that one. I think that is such a powerful statement because, like you said, there have been people telling the truth for so long and it really is time to listen. And it just jogged my memory to even 
thinking about the treatment of our chronic pain patients in more of a physiotherapy context and thinking about how we know that listening can be so powerful in their healing, in their treatment, because often for so long, they haven't had anyone to listen to their story. And so it can be such a powerful breakthrough in building that rapport. And I think, you know, when we understand the context, as you've mentioned, of our First Nations people, and we listen to our patients and understand their situation, their current context, then I think we move forward. This really is quite key. And I want you to talk a little bit too, being culturally sensitive as a physio, why that's important and how does it look practically? I think cultural sensitivity is something that people think, well, I'm not racist, you know, but then was it something like 43% of Australians still see Australia as being a racist country? So for me, I think there's a lot of Australians out there that still think that we treat people from different backgrounds in different ways. So we're prejudicing people based on their race. And if that's the case, then we need to think, well, why is that happening? There's been a lot of controversy at the moment around the Collingwood Football Club and really comes from, I suppose, maybe a lack of earlier acknowledgement about systemic racism that was happening at the club. Certainly applaud any club or organisation that has a look at it themselves and their processes as to how they're behaving in this way. But I think we need to recognise that we're a product of our parents, we're a product in the places we work and go to. And sometimes it's hard to know if something's racist or not. And if you don't like that term, prejudicing someone based on their background or who you think they are. And this isn't something that's unique to First Nations peoples in this country. There's a lot of culturally and linguistically diverse people in this nation who are prejudiced against quite strongly. And I think it's important to combat that by listening to their stories, so listening to migrant stories, listening to different people's backgrounds. But I think certainly for First Nations people, we've looked after our lands and the stories have been here for really for Aboriginal people, it's time immemorial. And I think First Nations peoples for Australians should hold a very special place in all of our hearts. Absolutely. I agree. I think the grace that has been afforded for so long to the wider Australian community has just been quite remarkable. I think, like you said, there has just been an ongoing fight for survival and to maintain relationships with, to walk alongside people who have caused trauma in the past, I think is quite profound. You've mentioned truth listening, you've mentioned confronting racism. And so we've got a little bit of a segment here that I want to go into. I'm sure you've seen the You Can't Ask That segment on the ABC. And to confront some of those racist thoughts or racist claims that people might make, I've compiled a couple of questions that I think we hear quite often or that maybe the common public or our audience don't understand the reasons for. And so we've created this space to be able to speak to these questions openly and honestly. And so my one for you, Michael is why do people get offended when I ask them how Aboriginal they are? Well, I know you don't ask them that, Cam, but essentially being Aboriginal, you need to identify as being Aboriginal and you need to have some Aboriginal family or blood, okay? That's what you need to have. And then you're Aboriginal. doesn't matter your skin colour, doesn't matter anything. You're just Aboriginal and you're accepted as one. There's a lot of history there, and it kind of comes back to some truth-telling and truth-listing about once upon a time, there was people that might have been, or like myself, I had an Aboriginal mother and a father was of 
English or British descent, I would have been counted as a half-caste. And so I might have been taken away from my family to take away from my Aboriginal upbringing and then being put into some other family or maybe put to work as a servant or if I was a woman, maybe a maid in a landowner's house or something. And that's how I would live out my life. And so it can be incredibly hurtful to use some of those terms. And also how Aboriginal you are, it's kind of asking I don't know if it's quite right because I'm a heterosexual male, but I wonder if it's the same as asking maybe a gay person how gay you are. It's either you are or you aren't. I don't understand how it can be or however you identify sexually. It's just who you are. And so being Aboriginal is an identity. Well, for me, being a Wiradjuri man is part of my identity. I'm not half a Wiradjuri man. I'm not a quarter. That's who I am. And to have someone ask me how Aboriginal I am would be, well, are you only what, half a man? Am I only half an Aboriginal man or am I only sort of half Australian? That's how I get offended. And so I'll just say, well, and I might get a bit technical on them and I might talk about some of my family background and things and, and I'll just politely inform them not to ask that question of another person again, because it can be quite deeply, deeply offending. And for me, it's very much a sense of identity and who you are within. Just because you have some Aboriginal ancestry if you don't identify as being Aboriginal, then you can't really call yourself that. You can say you've got some Aboriginal ancestry there, and maybe it was your great, 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 great grandmother or whatever that you knew to be through maybe Ancestry.com or you've looked through your family tree that they were Aboriginal. That doesn't make you Aboriginal. It means you've got certainly some history there that you can be incredibly proud of. But to identify as Aboriginal, it needs to be part of you. It needs to be part of your identity and needs to be recognised as such by your mob. Absolutely. I think you've spoken quite to the point on identity. And I want to talk a little bit more about your identity towards the end of the show. For now, I want to move to these two terms you've mentioned earlier, reconciliation and closing the gap. What do they mean? Yeah, they've been used and abused quite a lot. But reconciliation is really just a coming together of ideas to mend or to heal a past. It's a healing word, really. Reconciliation is to understand each other's side, come to some sort of agreement on how you can move forwards and move forward. That's what reconciliation is to me. It's to reconcile the inequities that have been present and continue to be present with Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians and Closing the gap, they go hand in hand because the gap I see is certainly looking at correcting that gap in life expectancy, infant mortality, incarceration rates, mental health, youth suicide, the list goes on. But I think it also speaks to maybe some of the themes that we've been talking about today, Cam, is that big gap between a knowledge of Indigenous people or Indigenous Australia or First Nations people and non-Indigenous Australia. And I think that gap is still very, very broad. There's a lot of things that need to happen for our First Nations people, but I think collectively as a whole, we need to close that knowledge gap. We need to close that truth gap. So you've mentioned the gap there, in your view, is a knowledge gap, and I really like that. What I'm wondering then is how can non-Indigenous people help to close that knowledge gap? Do you have any strategies or resources that you would point our listeners to that, that they can do something practically? Because I know if anyone is listening to this, then there is a journey that has begun. And so I'm wondering what can people do to progress in that journey, in your view? There's lots of resources in different places. I know Reconciliation Australia has been very active in this. It's kind of helped a whole bunch of organisations do reconciliation action plans. They release reports every year. But I think I really like, if you're not already doing it, then to acknowledge country when you come together. To acknowledge country in a way which isn't tokenistic, which isn't just, we'd like to acknowledge First 
nation's people of this area, elders past, present and future. It shouldn't be so formulaic. It should come with a story. It should come with an understanding and something from the heart, I think. And sometimes that requires going a little bit deeper. Sometimes it goes into understanding a little bit more about the people of the lands in which you live and work. For me, so, you know, I live on Telemadigal land or the lands of those Garingai peoples. I like to know a little bit about Darug lands when I go out to Western Sydney. I like trying to learn a little bit more about Wurundjeri lands when I go to Melbourne or Ngunnawal in Canberra or the Ghana people in Adelaide. I like to learn about cultures and I like to acknowledge those people and feel incredibly thankful when welcomed by those people onto lands because I know that not only am I warmly welcome there into what I see as their home, but I'm also, um, no, they'll look, you know, it's their duty to sort of help look after us while we're on there. Acknowledgement of country, I think, is good. And just having that little self reflection on what makes you who you are, you know, look at your own identity. But then if you're working with Indigenous people, and if you're a physio in Australia, you probably have looked after some Indigenous people. Think about a little bit more about how maybe you could celebrate those cultures of your local area. And I think if we start to do that, we can grow as Australians, as Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians, we can grow. I think it helps to shape our own identities and our national identity, but it also helps start to close that gap with our Indigenous patients and with other patients, you know, or other culturally and linguistically diverse patients. If we start to acknowledge their contribution in our work practices, in our questioning and in our sensitivities, it's not a tick box answer, is it, Cam? It's sometimes a hard thing to talk about, but it does require that little bit of reflection and acknowledgement and I suppose search for the truth and then listen to that truth when it's being said. There's been some wonderful conversations around Australia Day or Day of Mourning or Day of Invasion, however you want to describe it. But those conversations that have come out of that have been incredibly important and people should be listening to that. And I think things like that also then help to inform their practice as clinicians moving forwards as well. On that, I think you've really nailed it on the head. There is something that we are taught as physios, this reflexivity, this introspection. And I think that is the hallmark of a good therapist, someone who can come away from an experience with a patient. And it might not be the most positive experience, but your ability to learn from that experience and move forward and tuck that one under your belt and say, I'm not going to do that again. And so that reflexivity, even in general life, it doesn't have to be with a patient. It doesn't have to be in the clinic. It can be on the streets. It can be your interaction, even with the news. It might not be someone in front of you. But I know recently I've had these conversations about Australia Day and people have asked my opinion. And I've thought, well, why aren't we changing it? I mean, it's a relatively new date that's been given. And when you talk a little bit about the history of the Day of Mourning and how it precedes the current date of Australia Day, people are just unaware. And I think most people, when they become aware, think, oh, okay, that's fair enough for wanting to change the date then. And the conversation just becomes so much more amicable because there's that realization that it really does mean pain. And it's not that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are trying to tear apart modern Australia or, you know, there's all of this really inflammatory language around the topic. But like you said, maybe sometimes people just need to take a step back, reflect on the way that they're thinking towards a subject and learn a little bit about the history of the subject before they come to the table. You are an incredible man with an incredible story. I want to know the current Michael and where you're at at the moment, and uh, a little bit about your role in the APA, because I think it's a very special spot, 
and you've got some great ambitions that I would like to hear about and I'm sure our audience would love to hear as well. Sure. So I'm a titled sports physio. I work in a private practice in Sydney. I love working with football. So that's soccer for me and our football mob. Um, Sorry, it's football for us, but for anyone outside of football, world football, it's soccer. So I quite enjoy that. I still play it and I love physioing for it. I do some teaching around a few subjects, including ones around Indigenous health at Australian Catholic University in North Sydney, which I quite enjoy. And With the APA, I suppose my first foray into the APA was through the New South Wales Sports Physio Group. And I didn't really understand quite what the APA did before that, but I got a lot out of that experience. Cameron Elliott was the chair there at the time and really nice guy that I think now works in aged care. But he started to work and run courses and develop content, was actually chair of that for a couple of years. I moved across to New South Wales Branch Council and saw the wide breadth of physio outside of my um, little sports silo. Then the APA, through great work of Marilyn Morgan, Ray Gates and others, had really pushed forwards the idea of reconciliation and reconciliation action plans as well. It's been great leadership from previous presidents, including Melissa Lockie and Marcus Strips, who really embraced this idea of reconciliation and closing the gap and making sure that First Nations people had a voice in the APA. And that's how I got more involved with this committee, ATSIC, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Health Committee. And that was under Marilyn Morgan's leadership then. There was great leaps there to launch our first wrap and bring more people into the fold, just like yourself, Cam. And I've been very privileged to be able to see that grow and very privileged to be able to chair that committee for the last few years. Moving forwards, reconciliation and and the work the APA does and the health sector in Australia as a whole is It's an ongoing process. It's something that'll go beyond my lifetime. So I'm just another little cog in the wheel of trying to make positive change for all of us. And for me, the APA has been that vehicle for the time being. I've been very um, thankful for the people that work at the APA, the people that make podcasts like this possible, and people that put their hand up to host them just like you, Cam. That really means a lot to me. And it means a lot because I know that our stories and our voice will continue to be heard. Now, I'm not suggesting at all that you're looking tired, but I have watched you running with that baton, and I am so impressed, as I said, and have been inspired to put up my hands for a lot of things because I've seen how much you have taken on for yourself and how hard you push to advocate for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and advocate for physiotherapy in general. Coming to the end of this episode, I've got a couple of quick fire-ish questions, which I want our listeners to appreciate. I've got to ask these because they're going to be personal to you, but they also will be part of that journey, part of that learning for our listeners. And who knows, someone might come out with something that they love from it. And so to begin with, I want to ask, what is your favorite Indigenous word? What's your favorite Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander word and why? It's a Wiradjuri word and it's Yinjamara. And Yinjamara means respect. Respect, probably yes, in the way that maybe we'd think about it in common spoken English language, but a deep respect for yourself, your identity, your story, the land, you know, everything that encompasses your family, your heritage, your culture. Yinjamara is a very powerful word and a very deep word, which I don't know, just really resonates with me. So it's Yinjamara. What a word, respect the respect I have for you. (laughs) What's one word that sums up this reconciliation or closing the gap idea and what it looks like for you? Uh, One word that sums up the reconciliation, closing the gap idea. Let's say listening. 
listening. I think that has definitely been the theme of this podcast. Saying listening, this is an interesting segue into my next question. What is your favourite band and song of choice that you would listen to from any of our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists? Yeah, it's interesting. A nice segue there, Cam. Look, there's so much great talent coming forth. There's a lot of great young Indigenous hip-hop talent. I'm just not into that so much. So I, I wanted to nominate another song, which means a lot to my mother as well, and I think he has a wonderful voice, Kurungo Weathal, a beautiful song that was from a beautiful man with a beautiful voice. And it's actually meant a lot in my mother's healing from reconnecting with her culture after coming from that stolen generation's background. Well, Michael, I can tell you that not all of our listeners will like hip-hop R&B either, so it's nice to hear that there is a variety out there that people who are interested with a different taste can also enjoy and learn to respect as they listen to them. Michael, it's been such a privilege having you on The Deadly Physios Show, and I want to thank you for your time, thank you for your influence, thank you for your advocacy, and the education you've provided with us today. You're too deadly, Cam. (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Deadly Physios, an Australian Physiotherapy Association production. To learn more about this episode's guest and the Deadly Physio series, head to our website at australian.physio forward slash the deadly physios. And if you like this episode, please subscribe and leave a review.